okay, humans, I have <clears throat> some really hot tea for you. Um, we're going to go through two chapters right now <clears throat> from Whitney Webb's book, One Nation Under Blackmail. And by golly, I'm telling you, they're hot. So this first one's quick and easy. It's going to go by pretty quick. Give you some background on the situation, kind of catch you up to speed on where we're at. Uh, in regard to the Bronfman brothers and whatnot. And so without further ado, <clears throat> this chapter is called The Chairman. Chairman oh, and I'm going to have uh, AI read this for me because I'm having some allergy issues today. And also it really makes uh, life really convenient when I can use both my hands and like do stuff instead of like reading this to you guys. So um, I think this is a win-win for everyone. It should sound a lot better than when I read it. Chairman while Sam Bronfman struggled with the Quibu biographers, no biography was ever written of his one-time middleman and later chief rival, Louis Rosensteel. Those books and other writings that do touch on Rosensteel's history and demeanor, few are favorable. For instance, a 1,959 piece in Esquire offers one... Show this. Chairman while Sam Bronfman struggled with his would-be biographers, no biography was ever written of his one-time middleman and later chief rival, Louis Rosensteel. Those books and other writings that do touch on Rosensteel's history and demeanor, few are favorable. For instance, a 1,959 piece in Esquire offers one of the more favorable accounts, calling Rosensteel intelligent, articulate, and extraordinarily aggressive, adding that he often slopes in his chair, plays with his tongue as he speaks, and utters his strong opinions with a growl, expressing dislike and contempt for anyone who might disagree. 30 others, like Bronfman biographer Nicholas Faith, describe Rosensteel as loud, opinionated, and domineering a hulking figure who favored amber-tinted glasses, which he rarely removed, and large cigars to go with his status as one of the wealthiest men alive. 31 The New York Times obituary for Rosensteel uses similar terms, referring to the liquor baron known to many simply as the chairman as having been a domineering man with a quick temper. 32 official accounts of Rosensteel's past and how he built his company Shenley into a corporate behemoth seem oddly sanitized, not unlike the official accounts of the Bronfman family's early days that declined, to mention the darker side of their business model that was particularly important to their activities prior to the repeal of American Prohibition. Born in 1891 in Cincinnati, Ohio, Rosensteel, thanks to an unfortunate injury, during a football match in his teenage years dropped out of high school and went to work for his uncle at the Susquehannock Distilling Company in Milton, Kentucky in 1907. Rosensteel worked on largely menial tasks at the facility, including as a pinhooker rolling barrels in warehouses and as a belt splicer. His fortunes shifted dramatically from those humble beginnings during the era of American Prohibition, with little being known of his life during the period, aside from him allegedly leaving the tedious tasks of his uncle's distillery behind to become a whiskey broker. According to official accounts, Rosensteel turned to selling shoes and bonds once Prohibition set in, with his prior line of work in the distilling and sale of spirits drying up. Yet, somehow, the young Rosensteel accumulated enough money to afford a vacation to the French Riviera in 1922. It was during that vacation that he would be lucky enough to score a chance meeting with Winston Churchill, who advised him to prepare for the return of liquor sales in the United States per the New York Times. 33. There is little, if any, context given in official accounts as to how or why a high school dropout turned distillery worker and shoe salesman would have attracted the attention of a notorious elitist and member of the British aristocracy like Churchill. As the story goes, Rosensteel spent the next 10 years of his life dutifully following Churchill's advice. He somehow convinced one of the most powerful banks on Wall Street, Lehman Brothers, to offer him a massive loan to finance his acquisition of closed distilleries and to accumulate aged whiskey inventories for the yet-to-materialize date of repeal. 
Again, no official explanation is offered as to how an elite banking institution like Lehman Brothers would grant someone with Rosenstiel's background such a large amount of capital based merely on advice he had received from a British politician, suggesting there is more to the story. Returning to the official narrative of Rosenstiel's rise, we are told that Rosenstiel then incorporated Shenley Distillers Company in the wake of repeal in 1933. He was conveniently well-placed to become the most powerful figure in the distilled spirits business all thanks to his having heeded Churchill's advice, and thanks to a remarkable patience that he was never known to have possessed during any other point in his life. 34 indeed, per these same official sources, impatience, rather than patience, was one of Rosenstiel's most well-known traits, with his characterization by media as a domineering man with a quick temper, being one of many examples. Of course, as should be clear to the reader, this narrative conveniently obfuscates any hint of illegality in Rosenstiel's Prohibition-era dealings and fails to mention Rosenstiel's documented ties to organized crime figures, or his role as a prominent purchaser of Bronfman liquor alongside Joseph Rienfeld and other Seagram's middlemen. Years later, James P. Kelly, chief investigator for the Interstate and Foreign Commerce Committee of the New York House of Representatives. What's up, Bob? Are you able to hear that? Does that make like coherent sense when she reads it or is it better when I read it? <laughs> Kelly, chief investigator for the Interstate and Foreign Commerce Committee of the New York House of Representatives, testified under oath that Rosensteel had been part of an underworld consortium that bought Bronfman liquor and sold it throughout the United States during Prohibition. 35 key figures in this consortium, aside from Rosenstiel, included Meyer Lansky as well as Joe Fusco, an associate of Al Capone, and Joe Lindsay, a Boston-based criminal associated with Joe Kennedy's bootlegging operations. Kelly added that Rosenstiel was particularly close to Lansky, and it later emerged that they had owned points together in mob-operated businesses. He was also reportedly close to Frank Costello, who was said to have attended a business meeting alongside Rosenstiel to give the meeting's attendees a message that Rosenstiel was one of their people. 36 One of Rosenstiel's ex-wives, Susan Kaufman, later told journalist Anthony Summers that, in Summers' words, living with Rosenstiel was to live with the command structure of organized crime. Kaufman's testimony to Summers includes numerous, specific, and very detailed allegations of the various meetings between her ex-husband and organized crime figures she witnessed during their marriage, including business meetings where Rosenstiel was given thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars in bundles of cash from Lansky. After Prohibition, Fusco and Lindsay took their operations into the legal and legitimate business world, just as Rosenstiel had done. They set up legitimate companies in Chicago and Boston, respectively, to market Shenley products. As a result, Rosenstiel maintained his links to the criminal underworld long after publicly transitioning from bootlegger to businessman. Frequent dinner guests at Rosenstiel's home in the years and decades after Prohibition included legendary figures of American organized crime, including Frank Costello, Sam Giacana, Santo Traficante, and Meyer Lansky. Lansky was known to address Rosenstiel as Supreme Commander, a name that Roy Cohn, Rosenstiel's attorney and close friend, also used for the liquor baron. 37 Rosenstiel's transition from bootlegger to businessman very nearly included a direct partnership with Sam Bronfman. In 1929, as the end of Prohibition neared, Bronfman invested $585,000 in a Rosenstiel-owned distillery, producing medicinal spirits and had acquired a 20% stake in Rosenstiel's company. Per Sam, however, he concluded after visiting Rosenstiel's distillery that it was a piece of junk and on the inside it was even worse and he was allegedly offended at the inferiority of his whiskey production method. It's unclear if this was the actual motive for their falling out, but, regardless, their subsequent business and personal rivalries became legendary. According to Nicholas Faith's account of Bronfman's life, the falling out with Rosenstiel, whatever the cause, took a tremendous emotional toll on the two men before it descended into a decades-long, acrimonious spat. Faith asserts that Bronfman's failure to reach an agreement with Rosenstiel really hit him, for he came down with severe flu soon after calling off any possibility of a partnership. Despite being gravely ill, Bronfman told Rosenstiel that we have nothing to discuss when the latter had arrived to attempt to salvage a deal. 
Aaron's Robertson's manuscript, as cited by Faith, states that Rosenstiel all but wept as he begged for just a minute with my friend. 38. Their feud would subsequently escalate to such an extent that it would transcend business competition, with a 1,959 article in Esquire noting that neither man appears willing to sacrifice profit to do the other in the eye. Rosenstiel was known to refer to Bronfman and his business as unscrupulous alien competition with alien in this instance meaning foreign, i.e. Canadian. 39. Bronfman, for his part, was known to become angry rather quickly when Rosenstiel's name or business came up, saying he had no admiration for the man, and would frequently refer to him as Rosenschlemiel with Schlemiel, meaning something along the lines of simpleton or a born loser in Yiddish. 40. It was also alleged that Bronfman's lavish Seagram building in New York City had been planned to make Rosenstiel's 1930s-style offices in the Empire State Building look just a little shabby in their luxury. 41. The King of Bourbon and Blackmail. All right, so that's the first um, chapter in our podcast today and the book club. Basically talking about how Sam Bronfman and this guy, Louis Louis Rosenstiel, um, they're both massive assholes, you know, weirdos and fucking gay and all that kind of, you know, that's not that's not a bad thing, but they were short-tempered is what I should say. <clears throat> short-tempered. Um, rude to their wives, stuff like that, you know, um, and, uh, yeah, really conniving kind of mob boss assholes, um, and just really weird guys, (laughs) Sam Bronfman and, uh, Louis Rosenstiel, and they, they probably would have been better off if they had worked together, but I think over some kind of personal ego pissing contest they kind of fell apart and um it's just rather strange but i'm going to attempt to get the next chapter ready for you which is entirely more interesting i i promise and i'm going to check on you guys see if you have any questions about that last episode um Rosensteel is a big name around here in Canada, huh? You must be up in Canada. <clears throat> Excellent. Well, then this is going to this is going to be even more interesting to you then, I think, because I'm just learning about all these characters. But this next chapter is called The King of Bourbon and Blackmail. And this is where it starts getting interesting. Um, let me see if I could simply. Yes. Highlight what I need. And then I'm going to do my best to um, have this whole chapter read to us by AI so that y'all don't have to. But it's so good. It's such a good chapter. This is where it really starts to get juicy. This is where we find out (laughs) why they named a vacuum cleaner after J. Edgar Hoover. So. It gets good. <laughs> oh, man. Let's see. So I think I have it all copied. I can take all of this, select all, and choose to paste something different in its place. Jesus Christ. Select all. Del- delete. There we go. Now, hit enter. And... Listen. The King of Bourbon and Blackmail, the though both men had Bourbon legendary and tempers and a legendary feud to match, Bronfman and Rosenstiel had major differences in character, particularly in how they managed their respective businesses and in their personal lives. 
One of these differences was the fact that Sam Bronfman did not share Rosenstiel's obsession with blackmail. Indeed, reports of Rosenstiel's behavior at his company's offices, as cited by Nicholas Faith, included Rosenstiel having placed bugging devices throughout his offices. Perfect. He would treat his employees like dirt, sacking them at a moment's notice, and then go to the toilet to leave them time to compromise themselves by talking in his absence. Those employees were compromised as their conversations were recorded by the devices that Rosenstiel had strewn about the premises. Additional assertions made in court and under oath by one of Rosenstiel's ex-wives held that Rosenstiel had also placed microphones throughout his home in order to record conversations that took place at social events he hosted for the alleged purpose of obtaining potential blackmail against his guests. In addition, several sources reported to the 1971 New York State Legislative Committee on Crime that Rosenstiel's Manhattan home had been wired from roof to basement with hidden microphones so that he could spy on visitors and staff. 42 The system in Rosenstiel's home had been installed by Fred Odish, an infamous private North detective who had used electronic okay. means to spy on the Kennedy family, Marilyn Monroe, and others. Odish later said that Rosenstiel's home was rigged to tape conversations for hours on end. Odish had a penchant for blackmail himself, particularly sexual blackmail he had once attempted to entrap John F. Kennedy using a call girl named Sue Young in the lead up to the 1960 presidential election. 43 As we'll see shortly, Rosenstiel was also involved in a broader effort to obtain this variety of blackmail, Woo! which may explain why he had sought out the California-based Odish to bug his New York home. Some of the sources that discuss Rosenstiel's interest in blackmail also claim that Rosenstiel was bisexual. According to Nicholas Faith, discussions about Rosenstiel's bisexuality among Shenley office employees were frequent enough for Rosenstiel to be referred to as Rosie around the office. Additional evidence for these claims later came from Rosenstiel's fourth wife, Susan Kaufman. Per Kaufman, whose previous marriage had collapsed because her first husband had been homosexual, she soon discovered that she had made a similar mistake in marrying Rosenstiel. Rosenstiel was reportedly uninterested in having sex with his new wife, but went to great expense to have her dress up in clothes that made her look like a little girl. 44 He would later be discovered in bed with one of his lawyers, Roy Cohn, and shrugged it off to his wife by asking for some more alone time with his attorney. Okay, right there, that's important. Uh, he, she just mentioned Roy Cohn. Um, who happens to be Donald Trump's mentor, right? So this Rosenstiel guy, um, who is uh, clearly involved with Jeffrey Epstein-like activities, like sexual blackmail, you know, uh, hiding cameras in his office and setting up his employees to say something, you know, incriminating uh, on tape, and or at least that he could use as a leverage on them and um yeah this guy was having sex with donald trump's mentor all right guys roy Cohn. so that's what she just said kaufman remembered responding i've never seen governor thomas dewey in bed with you as dewey was also one of his attorneys at the time and she walked out 45 Kaufman remembered the young Cone, who was best known for his infamous stint as Joe McCarthy's chief counsel during the height of the Red Scare, as flaunting his homosexuality whenever he was around Kaufman, openly caressing a former congressional associate in front of her and describing the homosexual antics of a close friend of his and Rosenstiel's Cardinal Spellman, one of the most powerful figures in the Catholic Church in North America. Cohn reportedly was so open with her because her first husband had been gay and I must have understood because I had stayed with him for nine years, Kaufman later stated. 46 in 1958, Kaufman accompanied her husband Louis Rosenstiel to a party hosted by Cohn at the Plaza Hotel in New York. Kaufman recalled entering through a side entrance and taking an elevator to the second or third floor. Her husband knew the way well enough that she had the impression he had been there before. The suite was one of the largest available at the hotel, and it was all done in light blue. 
inside the sweet were Cohn and another figure closely associated with both Cohn and Rosenstiel, FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover. To Kaufman's surprise, Hoover was wearing women's clothes and wig, with Cohn introducing him as Mary in a bout of barely concealed laughter. Mary was also incidentally the nickname widely used among New York Catholic clergy for Cardinal Spellman, who was also alleged to attend other parties hosted by Cohn in the Plaza's Blue Suite. 47 After being served a few drinks, Kaufman recalled seeing a couple of boys come in, young blonde boys. I'd say about 18 or 19. And then Roy Cohn makes the signal we should go into the bedroom. 48 Sexual activities between the young blonde boys, Cohn and Hoover ensued, with Kaufman declining to participate after being urged to do so by her then-husband. Okay, so just to be clear, guys, we have a group of young teenage blonde boys being led into a room at a party by Roy Cohn, who is Donald Trump's mentor, a lawyer and a very powerful mentor and a lawyer um, that was essentially a mentor to Donald Trump, right? Donald Trump surrounded himself with this man growing up, learned a lot from him. And they had a gay sex party with J. Edgar Hoover and a bunch of young teenage boys. Uh, and I just, this story just does not stop getting juicy. So I just wanted to like lay that context for you guys before we get back into it. Here we go. Rose and Steels then left, leaving the boys alone with Cone and Hoover. Cone later laughed about the incident to Kaufman, saying that Mary Hoover attends his parties regularly and that he would make sure to arrive at the plaza first with his clothes, the female clothes allegedly used by Hoover at the parties in a suitcase. 49 per her testimony, Kaufman was repulsed by the whole affair, but ended up attending another of these parties at the plaza after Rosenstiel bribed her with an expensive pair of earrings from Harry Winston's. 50 of the events of that evening played out as they had the time before, but the Rosensteels later quarreled, and she never attended any more cone-hosted parties at the Plaza Hotel. These allegations made by Kaufman resulted in considerable efforts to discredit her testimony, especially during the 1971 New York State Legislative Committee on Crime. Kaufman had agreed to serve as a witness for the state regarding her ex-husband's ties to organized crime figures. The very week that she was due to testify, Kaufman was hit with an attempted perjury charge that was regarded as unprecedented and bizarre by lawyers and outraged the committee's chairman and chief counsel. Kaufman still testified, but mostly behind closed doors, in executive session. Her testimony several decades later still remains sealed. Members of the committee believed at the time that the attempted perjury charges had been instigated by Louis Rosenstiel himself in order to prevent his wife from testifying, as he had previously used similar tactics to protect his corrupt dealings. 51 This attempted perjury charge has since been used by some authors to discredit Kaufman's later testimony regarding her ex-husband and his associates. However, the former chief counsel of the Crime Committee, New York Judge Edward McLaughlin, and committee investigator William Gallinaro found Kaufman to be an exceptionally good witness. 52 MC Lachlan later told journalist and Hoover biographer Anthony Summers, I thought her absolutely truthful. The woman's power of recall was phenomenal. Everything she said was checked and double-checked, and everything that was checkable turned out to be true. Additional evidence corroborating Kaufman as a witness came from two male witnesses who supported the astonishing allegations of Hoover's habit of cross-dressing, with those witnesses having learned of the former FBI director's habit at a different time and place than the events described by Kaufman. They also had no knowledge of Hoover and the Blue Suite parties in New York. In addition, Kaufman told Anthony Summers that she possessed photographs showing Hoover in the company of Lewis, Rosenstiel's organized crime associates. Though Summers did not see these pictures personally, they were confirmed as authentic and had been seen by journalist Mary Nichols of the Philadelphia Inquirer. Nichols told Summers she did have suitcases of photographs that she had hauled away from her marriage to Louis Rosenstiel. The ones I saw showed Hoover, lawyer Roy Cohn and Rosenstiel at all sorts of social events with mobsters. 
1953 there is also evidence that not only did these parties at the Plaza Hotel take place, but that they were used to obtain sexual blackmail, with Kaufman asserting that her husband possessed pictures of Hoover wearing women's clothes and that those images had been passed to Rosenstiel's associate, mobster Meyer Lansky. 54 journalist and author Anthony Summers has noted that, given Rosenstiel's interest and ability to have his residences and businesses bugged, Rosenstiel was quite capable of having the sex sessions at the plaza bugged, or arranging for Edgar to be photographed in his female costumes. 55 In addition, New York attorney John Klotz, tasked with investigating Roy Cohn for a case, well after Kaufman's testimony, independently found evidence of the blue suite at the Plaza Hotel and its role in a sex extortion ring after combing through local government documents and information gathered by private detectives. It allegedly involved minors as well as young men aged 18 and older. Klotz later summarized his findings, telling journalist and author Burton Hirsch, Roy Cohn was providing protection. There were a bunch of pedophiles involved. That's where Cohn got his power from blackmail. 56 Further confirmation of Rosenstiel's and Cohn's activities in the Blue Suite, later determined to be Suite 233, comes from statements made by Cohn himself to former NIP detective and ex-head of the department's Human Trafficking and Vice-Related Crimes Division, James Rothstein. Rothstein later told John DeCamp, a former Nebraska state senator, who investigated the Franklin scandal of the 1980s that Cohn had admitted to being part of a sexual blackmail operation, targeting politicians with minors during a sit-down interview with the former detective. Rothstein told DeCamp the following about Cohn, Cohn's job was to run the little boys. Say you had an admiral, a general, a congressman, who did not want to go along with the program. Cohn's job was to set them up, then they would go along. Cohn told me that himself. 57 Rothstein later told Paul David Collins, a former journalist turned researcher, that Cohn had also identified this sexual blackmail operation as being part of the anti-communist crusade of the time. 58 The fact that Cohn, per Rothstein's recollection, stated that this sex blackmail ring was part of the anti-communist crusade coupled with Hoover's involvement in these blue sweet events suggests that elements of the government, including Hoover's FBI, may have been connected at a much broader level to the operation in a way that transcended Hoover's own personal involvement. Rothstein confirmed his statements to both DeCamp and Collins in an interview with me that was conducted in early 2020. He additionally told me that Cohn had told him that his role in this ring had originally come about because he himself had been entrapped and blackmailed, leading Rothstein to feel some sort of sympathy for Cohn. For those that may find it hard to believe that such an operation would take place with the involvement of the FBI director, there are also other related allegations to consider that American intelligence operatives and organized crime had competed and then collaborated to blackmail Hoover years before Kaufman witnessed these events at the Plaza Hotel beginning in 1958. Lansky was credited with obtaining compromising photos of FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover sometime in the 1940s, which showed Hoover in some kind of gay situation according to a former Lansky associate, who also said that Lansky had often said of Hoover, I fixed that sonophobic. Meyer Lansky's <laughs> widow also later claimed that her husband had acquired hard proof of Hoover's homosexuality and used it to neutralize the FBI as a threat to his own operations. 59 The photos showed Hoover engaged in sexual activity, specifically oral sex, with his longtime friend, FBI Deputy Director Clyde Tolson. 60 There is considerable, separate evidence from the period that the close, professional relationship between Hoover and Tolson was also intimate and that this was an open secret in Washington. 61 At some point, these photos fell into the hands of CIA counterintelligence chief James J. Angleton, who later showed the photos to several other CIA officials, including John Wheats and Gordon Novel. 62 Both Wheats and Novel later stated that the pictures they had seen showed Hoover engaged in oral sex on a man who Angleton identified as Tolson, however, only Hoover's face was recognizable in the photographs. 63 Angleton also claimed that the photos had been taken in 1946. 
1964 Angleton was in charge of the CHA's relationship with the FBI as well as Israeli intelligence until he left the agency in 1972. Angleton was also a CIA figure who had pushed for the agency to forge ties with Meyer Lansky, raising the possibility that Angleton could have received the photo from Lansky. However, Anthony Summers, in official and confidential, The Secret Life of J. Edgar Hoover, has argued that it was not Lansky, but William Donovan, the director of the OSS, who obtained the original photos of Hoover, yes, and either he, or another person at the OSS or early CIA, had later shared them with Lansky. Summers also states that to gangster Frank Costello and Lansky, the ability to corrupt politicians, policemen and judges was fundamental to mafia operations. The way they found to deal with Hoover, according to several mob sources, involved his homosexuality. 65 with the mobster associates of Rosenstiel being under significantly more pressure during the 1950s, in large part thanks to the Kefauver Committee, it's possible that Hoover's appearances at the Plaza Hotel may have served as additional insurance for these interests. Hoover, for his part, was likely already used to the realities of being blackmailed by this point, given that his private sex life had been known to the mob and its intelligence community for years. He likely saw the opportunity to partake in the scheme as a means of amassing his own massive collection of blackmail. Thick dossiers on friend and foe alike, Hoover's office contained secret files on numerous powerful people in Washington and beyond, files he used to gain favors and protect his status as FBI director for as long as he wished. Even former OSS veterans like Richard Helms have made such claims, alleging that Hoover played a very skillful game with knowledge of the sexual habits of prominent people. 66 further evidence for this comes from journalist and author Burton Hirsch who alleges in his book Bobby and Jay Edgar, the historic face-off between the Kennedys and Jay Edgar Hoover that transformed America that Hoover had also been tied to Sherman Kaminsky who helped run a sexual blackmail operation in New York that involved young male prostitutes. 67 Kaminsky claimed to have been New York bred, but federal investigators later stated he was originally from Baltimore. Some reports claim Kaminsky had ties to Israel, having served in the Israel Defense Forces. 68 The Ring, which was called the Chickens and the Bulls by the Nip, targeted prominent men who were closeted homosexuals throughout the United States, many of them married with families. Among those who had been blackmailed were a Navy admiral, two generals, a U.S. congressman, a prominent surgeon, an Ivy League professor, and well-known actors and television personalities. 69 That operation was busted and investigated in a 1966 extortion probe, led by Manhattan District Attorney Frank Hogan, though the FBI quickly took over the investigation and photos showing Hoover and Kaminsky together soon disappeared from the case file. 70 Kaminsky successfully avoided arrest for 11 years, having disappeared from a New York courthouse undetected during his sentencing hearing. 71 Why would Hoover have been involved with the activities of Kaminsky? There are only a few possibilities. One possibility is that Hoover had been blackmailed by Kaminsky, though it's more likely that Kaminsky instead had ties to figures in organized crime that had already blackmailed Hoover long before. Another possibility is that Hoover was cozy to a second sexual blackmail operation, targeting closeted homosexual men, because he sought to pad his own library of blackmail for personal and professional gain. What does seem clear is that Hoover was well aware of the power that amassing blackmail afforded and was willing to indulge in taboo behavior at the Blue Suite because he was no longer concerned about being extorted or manipulated with sexual blackmail in ways that would end his career or destroy his public image. He had fallen in with the very crowd that had reportedly blackmailed him, later developing a symbiotic relationship with that same network. The most obvious and troubling symptom of this symbiosis was Hoover's reluctance to tackle organized crime as FBI director. 
Hoover repeatedly declined to use the Bureau to target organized crime networks, referring to organized crime as a local problem in which the FBI did not need to intervene for most of his nearly 50-year stint as the top law enforcement administrator in the country. 72 According to congressional crime consultant Ralph Salerno, Hoover's apparent aversion to targeting organized crime networks, such as those in which Rosenstiel and Lansky figured prominently, allowed organized crime to grow very strong in economic and political terms, so that it became a much bigger threat to the well-being of this country than it would have been if it had been addressed much sooner. 73. Mm -hmm. What happened? I need to, I think my phone might have just locked itself. Let's see. We're at 71. That was the last point. That was the last point in the whole article, uh, chapter. Yeah. Came much bigger threat to the well-being. Uh, <clears throat> let's see. Uh, According to congressional crime consultant Ralph Solnero, Hoover's apparent aversion to targeting organized crime networks, such as those in which Rosenstiel and Lansky figured prominently, allowed organized crime to grow very strong in economic and political terms so that it became a much bigger threat to the well-being of this country than it would have been if it had been addressed much sooner. So that is to sum up that whole um chapter uh that basically j edgar hoover was so gay that it literally um <laughs> put the country in danger guys you can't make this shit up like this is so fucking crazy uh and i mean i had heard these rumors that j edgar hoover was gay i had no idea how politically meaningful it, it was you know um so this is absolutely blowing my mind um this has been by and far the coolest episode of the secret podcast of all ages and one book club under blackmail so we're right at 30 minutes which is convenient nice um uh, hope you guys were able to hear everything clearly. Uh, feel free to let me know if there's anything you want me to do differently. Like if you guys like me to read it or if you like the robot to read it, whatever is clever, let me know what's up. But yeah, J. Edgar Hoover um, was sucking dick like a Hoover vacuum back in the day um, to the extent that it literally put the country in danger. So simmer on that one and uh, I say marinate, let, let that one marinate on that one a little bit. <laughs> And I'll see y'all on the next one.